welcome to today's episode of the Comical Heathen. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian. Uh, this is my podcast, and welcome to it. I started this podcast about 18 months ago. It is a component in some ongoing research I'm doing about religious satire. Every episode includes an interview, and I'm very enthusiastic about today's interview. It is with uh, author, scholar, teacher, humor researcher, Peter McGraw. Professor McGraw joined me by Skype a few weeks ago, and I will be sharing with you uh, the conversation that we had. Also, I will, in addition to my interview with Professor McGraw, we will have an update from the Rabbit Hutch as well. And uh, before we get into that, I actually have another announcement to make. I haven't uh, made too many of these types of announcements over the past year and a half. But let me catch you up to date on something that's been going on, something I'm a little bit excited about. I hope uh, you can, you know, hear the enthusiasm in my voice. To the seven people who listen to this podcast, you already know that this podcast is part of the research I'm doing on a book I'm writing. And I'm in conversations with a publisher and an editor, and that's developing naturally. That's been all along the past couple of years. Uh, But I'm adding a new phase to this journey of mine. If you look at the website for this podcast, it says, One man's wild and weird journey into the world of religious satire. I do stand-up comedy. I teach stand-up comedy. I'm writing a book about religious satire. I do this podcast about religious satire. So I'm adding something new to this project. So this is the first time I've talked about this on the podcast. And that is that I'm adding a new stand-up comedy special to this project. The special is currently under the same, you know, banner, The Comical Heathen. I am right now announcing for the first time to the general public the first performance of The Comical Heathen live show. If I had a special effects man or an Ed McMahon or a fan, friend, or listener, that's where like the wild and raucous applause would break out. You'll just have to imagine that in, you know, the sonic space of your imagination. Anyway, what the heck am I talking about? So I'm going to be doing a live Comical Heathen show. The date is October 20th, and this is in Cleveland. I am based in Northeast Ohio. This is in Cleveland. It's going to be at a venue called the Super Electric Pinball Parlor. The Pinball Parlor um, is a venue that is used for comedy shows. It uh, overlaps and tracks with the Cleveland Comedy Festival. It is located in the 78th Street Studios, which is a converted warehouse that's now used as gallery space and other kind of fun and hip happenings in that part of Cleveland. Tickets are $5. They'll be available at the door or online. I will have a link to where you could get tickets in the description of this podcast. I want to say that this show is being is possible because of the assistance of a couple of people. So I want to mention them. I want to especially thank John Wellington. Uh, People in the Cleveland comedy scene know John. He's been around for many years. He's one of the co-founders of the Cleveland uh, Comedy Festival. And he's very supportive of uh, young comics, local comics, uh, regional comedy, developing shows, developing material, running workshops. And he's just like a real positive energy type of guy. And uh, he helps run the comedy shows at the Pinball Parlor. So uh, he's worked with me to make this possible. He, uh, he has a, uh, another comedian who he works with at the parlor called uh, Logan, uh, Logan Rashaw. Uh, Logan and I have done shows together as well over the years. We did some Bonkers shows a couple of years ago when Bonkers had a regular room in Cleveland. And we got to know each other, and he is helping out. So thank you, John. Thank you, Logan. Kristen Galewood is helping me design the graphics that go with it. Uh, my daughter Kaylee is helping me design some of the additional branding material. And this show will have uh, an opener. So the show will be me doing about an hour of original uh, satire, uh, mostly religious, uh, some social, some political. And uh, it is inspired by this podcast. So if you've listened to more than three episodes of this podcast, you know that every episode includes a rant, a screed, a speech, um, a reaction of some kind, usually to something in the news, newspapers, headlines. So what I'm trying to do, uh, folks, is... Uh, almost like a uh, remix of the greatest hits. Go through each rant, find my favorite parts, either because they're funny or because I like what I'm trying to say, and then, you know, take them home, edit it, develop it, 
and uh, create an hour of new material based on some of the topics and some of the rants I've already done on this podcast. So uh, if you listen to the podcast, please, uh, first of all, tell other people. You know, let's get the word out. Uh, this is a unique podcast. We discuss religion and we discuss comedy. Two popular topics for podcasts, by the way. But there are not very many podcasts that have brought those two spheres together in the Venn diagram kind of way that uh, my research does and that this podcast does and that this show will do. Uh, I did say we'll have an opener. The opener uh, for the show will be John Hensler. If you're in the Northeast Ohio Cleveland scene, you know John. He's a well-known figure. He's a local satirist, wit, very active on Facebook. Uh, if you want to have entertaining discussions, arguments on Facebook, you should uh, friend John Hensler. There'll be more information in the description of this podcast, but hey, that is my announcement. The first ever live Comical Heathen show, October 20th, the Electric Pinball Parlor in Cleveland. Tickets are $5. I'm going to do this show a few times in the Cleveland area over the next few months. When I get it to where I really want it to be, it's going to be the basis of a tour, probably in uh, during the months of 2020. So, uh, you know, give me some feedback, give me some support. Uh, if there's episodes that you liked, if there's topics that you find interesting, if there's uh, jokes that sort of landed with you. Also, uh, you know, there's the uh, seven people who listen to this podcast. I don't know what seven cities you're in, uh, so let me know what seven cities you're in, and I will come to those seven cities, and uh, we'll try to keep this going. All right, so, live Comical Heathen Show. There you go. You got it. What else is going on in my life? Well, you know, me and my wife, uh, we are rabbit enthusiasts, if that's the correct expression. And so we uh, keep a couple of beautiful little Holland Lops, Kelvin and Newton. Uh, they both have those long hanging ears that Holland Lop type rabbits have. They don't have the sticky uppy ears like you see in Magic Axe. These are the droopy down ears. And our rabbits have a play area in the living room. We keep them indoors. And uh, of course they have cages and litter boxes and all that. And we line the cages of the rabbits' cages with newspapers, and this has had a kind of ironic side effect, and what I'm referring to is reading newspapers. I mean, who the heck reads paper newspapers anymore? Well, I do, because I read the headlines while I'm putting them into the rabbit cages. So in this 21st century world of social media and digital editions uh, and e-journals and all of electronic media, I've gone back to reading old-fashioned newspapers just because of having pet rabbits. Sometimes I see a headline will pop out at me because it contains misinformation. Uh, I consider misinformation a sin. And so I try to correct and fact check as much as I can. A common type of headline that always catches my eye is if it's something about religion or the supernatural, the paranormal, alternative medicine. Uh, these topics are often not actually covered very well in journalism. They're treated as soft journalism. The writers and reporters who write about them often do what's called a kind of a transcription reporting where they just get the information from their subjects and just repeat about like interesting going-ons and who knows if people even take it seriously. So anyway, you know, that's kind of why you get some pretty bad journalism sometimes with these kinds of topics. And when I see a headline like that, I've got to set the record straight. I mean, I am not trying to ruin everybody's good time. It may be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I was uh, putting newspapers into the bottom of the rabbit cage when a particular newspaper headline caught my gaze. I stood there, mesmerized. I was captivated. I couldn't look away. I stared and stared. You are focused on the headline. You are getting sleepy, sleepier, sleepier. Your body is relaxing. Your mind is empty. All I could see was this headline. Hypnotherapist helps clients make changes. By Tanya Missigers. July 29th, 2019, in the Winnipeg Daily News. Apologies to Miss Missigers, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Hypnotherapist helps clients make changes. Having read the article, 
a more honest and accurate headline would have read, Midlife Career Changer Asking $90 an Hour to Slightly Relax You. What do you think when you hear the word hypnosis? The word brings up a lot of different ideas. From stage hypnotists who make people cluck like chickens, to stories about past lives, to helping people stop smoking, to helping people rob banks in movies like Now You See Me, to simple relaxation exercises. Well, this article starts by assuring us, in this case, hypnotherapy has nothing to do with making someone cluck like a chicken. But what if I want to cluck like a chicken? What if I have some sort of avian fetish? You've heard of furries, people who dress up like stuffed animals. What if I'm a feathery? If she won't make me cluck like a chicken, that's discrimination. Hey, this actual specific article is about a, a woman, Kim Palmer. Kim Palmer, it turns out, just very recently got certified and started a home-based practice. And that's it. That's everything this article has to tell us about the hypnotherapist in the headline. There's no further context about why the author decided to write about this woman, how this woman got into hypnotherapy, how she was making a living before, nothing about other hypnotherapists in the area, or, and I would consider this next one to be like a big one, whether hypnotherapy actually works. This is frankly such a piss poor standard for journalism. Forget beating the old shoe leather, as old school reporters used to say. Miss Missigers didn't even have to get out of her pajamas to write this tripe. She gives us such an unbalanced and unnecessarily favorable account of this new age bullshit. It's like Deepak Chopra fucked a typewriter and this article is their love child. And I noticed that this hypnotherapist's name is Palmer. Seems like an ironic name for something that is considered, by some people, a con job. Like she's palming your money. At least her sister Rosie is working for her Benjamins. But I don't want to stoop to making fun of people's names. That'd be a little too playgroundish and a little too presidential. Hey, the rest of this article just reads like an advertisement. It pulls descriptions of the treatment just from the woman, Palmer, from her website, and from the website of the organization that has supposedly certified her. You know, it says the treatment is certified as fully compliant with the ethical standards of the American Medical Association. Womp, womp, wrong, fooled you. Nah, I'm just kidding. It, what it does say is it was uh, designed to adhere to the standards of the National Guild of Hypnotists. If you haven't heard of the National Guild of Hypnotists, they rank right in credibility, right in there, somewhere between the Association of Australian Surfer Groupies and the Alliance of Former Trump Press Secretaries. And, for the record, if I have to say this, most medical associations do not endorse hypnotherapy, and when they do mention it, it is in very tepid terms with phrases like insufficient evidence or insufficient research uh, being common. I'll give you an example. Here's a, a real-life example. A 2018 publication by the American Academy of Family Physicians on the dangers of smoking included a chapter on the many ways that people try and quit. So, of course, they gave hypnotherapy a mention, saying of it, and I quote, insufficient evidence. Ouch! You never want a girl or a medical journal to use those words to describe you. So, what do you think of Jerry? Does he cure what ails ya? Mmm, insufficient evidence. Imagine it on Jeopardy. Alex Trebek reads the clue. Insufficient evidence. A contestant rings in. Mmm, does hypnosis help people quit smoking? Sorry, Jim, we were looking for. How is Jerry in bed? In short, there's absolutely nothing in this article that you wouldn't find in a paid advertisement for this woman's newly opened business. No personal details about the practitioner, Miss Palmer, no mention of competitors, no prom photos with embarrassing haircuts, nothing. And let's face it, hypnotherapists are basically selling an invisible product that can never not work as long as they can keep their clients happy. It's like Deepak Chopra fucked a typewriter and 
Wait a minute, we did that one already. But it still applies. Look, pseudoscience and pseudomedicine are often like marked by slippery claims, slippery logic, slippery language while making vague, slippery promises. This hypnotherapist's use of language is more slippery than a wet floor at a lube factory. It's more slippery than a duck with an enema or a penguin on a slip and slide. It's more slippery than the Voting Rights Act in Texas. She talks what might sound like a good game, but when you listen carefully, she is using words and phrases that aren't very specific or particularly meaningful, words like natural and happiness and hypnotherapist. She's charging $90 an hour. I could almost pay off my student loans at that rate. And what does she sell for that price? Her website says she will release your negativity. And remember folks, release negativity is measured in uh, metric square tons of bullshit. Like they said on Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger boat. Palmer claims that hypnosis is completely natural which in alternative medicine branding, the word natural is sometimes used as if that were a synonym for healthy or good for you or inadmissible in a court of law. Hey, not everything natural is good for you. My ex-wife is natural, but she's also as poisonous as arsenic and she can bite your leg off like a shark, all of which are natural. Ex-wife jokes, classic. At least hypnosis is a fun word to say. It sounds so, well, hip. Sounds like something a hipster would do while eating a kale muffin while listening to an all-female Japanese taiko group drum Imagine Dragon covers in Brooklyn. As an aside, I would like totally pay $90 an hour to listen to an all-female Japanese taiko group drum Imagine Dragon covers. Instead of hypnosis, Hopnosis is when you get hypnotized by the cuteness of bunnies. My wife has hopnosis bad, real bad. She just sits on the couch for hours doing nothing but staring at Calvin and Newton. Hopnosis, fuck I'm clever. As an aside, that joke does not work as good for hippopotanosis. The way Miss Palmer's uh, website promises that all of your tomorrows will be happy reminds me of that kid Pedro's speech in the movie Napoleon Dynamite. If you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams come true. Although, you know, they're not the same, of course. Napoleon Dynamite has a score of 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hypnotherapy is Rotten Tomatoes. Speaking of movies, uh, you know, there was hypnosis in the film now You See Me, as well as in Woody Allen's movie, Curse of the Jade Scorpion. In both of those films, criminals use hypnosis as part of an elaborate heist, which may have been the most realistic description ever of hypnosis, an elaborate heist of the cashola in your wallet. Uh, in the movie The Hot Rock with Robert Redford, they hypnotize a bank manager to get him to open a safe deposit box with the trigger words, Afghanistan, banana stand. Afghanistan, banana stand. God, that's fun to say. But though nowadays that might be considered racist or maybe even fruitist. Hypnotherapists use trigger words to get unsuspecting victims to open their wallets. Words like hypnotherapist. Since I'm obsessed with shoddy reporting and stories like this, I did a little more digging and found that this same intrepid reporter whose name I can't pronounced correctly, uh, wrote another advertisement disguised as an article just one short year ago for this same woman's at the time business, which in those days was a home printing shop. And this woman sure likes to work from home. And I mean both of them. I kept looking for one of those like paid content tags you see sometimes on articles like this. But nope. The Winnipeg Daily News considers this a real honest-to-gosh news story. Hey, I'm going to include links to both these articles in the description of this podcast for your reference. I mentioned uh, stage hypnosis uh, at the top of this rant. I do want to say that's a whole other thing again. I have a friend of mine uh, who wrote her PhD on stage, the theatrics of stage uh, hypnotists. I'm a great fan of the entertainment value of stage hypnotists. My friend who did the study 
said it was very similar to just actors doing relaxation exercises. Close your eyes, do some deep breaths, and prepare to be creative. And if you've ever seen a stage hypnotist, they usually start with a kind of a large group. I've seen this a few times over the years. Once a stage hypnotist came to my high school and brought like 50 people on stage. And they did a couple simple things like a jumping jacks or barking like a dog. But you know, as the show goes on, especially the first few minutes, the stage hypnotist sends people back to their seats. You know, they're weaning out the ones who aren't into it. Uh, and by the end, they get like often just to like one person who is like totally into it. And again, I don't know what that one person is experiencing. I can't read their mind. I can't know what's in their heart. But I do know that I once was that one person. Those of you who know me know I did my master's degree at Brown University. And while I was there, the theater department brought a stage hypnotist to a midnight show. So that means it was a little R slash X rated as well. And they brought up about a dozen of us, of which I was one. And uh, we did some relaxation exercises for like a minute. And talk about shooting theatrical fish in a hypnotized barrel. These were all theater kids. You know, we were all ready to get on stage and act like chickens. Avian fetish or no. So it was fun. It was funny. You know, we got down on the floor in little lumps and he would say different types of vegetables. You know, be a, a, a kiwi, be a tomato, be a broccoli. And we all just like blah, blah, blah around on the stage. Because that's what we would do in acting classes and in rehearsals. And, you know, it was a midnight show. There were not very many sober people in that room, I suspect. At one point, uh, we got down about six people, and he said, uh, let's make an orgy. I mean, nothing actual pornographic happened, but, you know, people were hugging and near each other, you know. And then I said I was like the last one. I was part of the very last thing. Uh, what happened was I'm down on the floor with my eyes closed, like in some little ball doing some little goofy game. I never felt, by the way, out of control, like I was being compelled by mysterious mesmerism. I was very relaxed. I was I'm very expressive. I was very you know, open to suggestions. Again, like many actors and many young actors are. Uh, so I was on the ground, my eyes closed. And the stage hypnotist said, I'm going to let you, the audience, pick two people to go backstage and have sex. Just knowing my classmates and my friends, and I could, I could feel it coming. I could feel it coming, eyes closed, face on the floor, by very first name... Like 10 people shouted, Jerry, Jerry. Okay, so, you know, easy to predict. I'm definitely like the marked card in that deck. But then they have to pick the second person. And the name I hear is Blair. Pick Blair, Blair. And with my eyes closed, it did occur to me that Blair could be a girl's name or a boy's name. And this was Brown University in the 90s, my friends. It was a boy's name. So we stood up, me and this other young man, the stage hypnotist said, okay, I compel you, go backstage and have sex. And when you're done, come back out and tell us all about it. And me and Blair went backstage and now we're backstage. And as soon as we were backstage, it was just like the veil was lifted. We started laughing. It was like obviously awkward. We're both like young actors who are up for a game. Uh, you know, we're both young actors who might be up for anything theatrically or sexually, what the heck. But you know, no one was having sex. What we did was we set up like a little quick five second improv scene. Thank God, I think I took my shirt off and he unbuttoned the top of his pants. And then I like uh, cuddled under his arm, sort of like as the submissive one. And then we walked back out on stage with just like a, you know, a drunken swagger, a hubba hubba look. The audience went nuts with the laughter. And uh, the hypnotist interviewed us a little bit, but I think he knew not to like push it too far. I don't know. So we just gave like one word answers like, yeah, <laughs> oh, good. Like, silly stuff like that. So I have been not only uh, the participant in a stage hypnotist act, but I was actually like the last person who's the person who will like do anything. And I guess I didn't do anything in the X-rated sense, but I did participate in the last joke or gag of this show. Hey, it was fun. It was fun. But, but I can tell you, I never did anything that I was like compelled beyond my will to do. So I just wanted to share that kind of personal story. On a final note, going back to my article, on a final note about the article, the reporter quotes testimonials from Miss Palmer's website. No, she didn't even interview the clients herself, just quoted them off the website, 
she'd have to put on clothes and got off the couch. Now, these were some positive comments, and if anyone finds hypnotherapy helpful, I wish you well. Hey, life is fucking hard enough. If hypnotherapy is helping someone, then hey, I'm not gonna just punch you in the mouth. But I, I will say, scientifically speaking, testimonials are just anecdotes. They're just one person's experience, and, and you know, anecdotal evidence is not considered strong evidence. But in this case, it is even worse. We cannot trust what these people are saying. After all, they've been hypnotized. Hey, let's be open-minded to the evidence. Here, let me see if hypnosis really works. Afghanistan, banana stand. There, done. I look forward to receiving all of your checks and money orders. I gotta find some way to pay off these student loans. And that is what I found at the bottom of the rabbit hutch today. And uh, that leads us to today's interview. Uh, today's interview is with Peter McGraw. Peter McGraw is a professor at the University of Colorado uh, where he runs something known as the Humor Research Lab. Uh, we talk about his lab in the interview and what the work is that goes on there. He is best known for a book that he co-authored with Joel Warner called The Humor Code. We talk about The Humor Code in the interview, and so I'll let you hear about it there. I, I will say The Humor Code and Professor McGraw's research in general has generated a, a concept in humor studies known as benign violation. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't, but benign violation. Uh, and we will discuss both benign violation and its potential application to satire and religious satire in the interview. I'm going to mention two other quick things. If you have been listening to this podcast, or if you haven't, there's an earlier episode where I interviewed uh, well-known television writer and producer Dan O'Shannon. And uh, Dan's been on this podcast. He's on my other podcast once. He is from the Cleveland area. He comes back you know, to town, and he is a great supporter of local comedians and local artists, and I really appreciate him. And I just want to say, in that interview, the Comical Heathen interview episode with Dan O'Shannon, we discuss Peter McGraw. He comes up in the conversation. So that was sort of like a nice little funny coincidence that the two interviews are kind of connected there. Peter McGraw and Joel Warner have a epigram at the beginning of their book. This is a famous quote by E.B. White. E.B. White is known for writing Charlotte's Web, those of you who are paying attention at home. And E.B. White once said this of studying humor. Humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. And then Professor McGraw and Mr. Warner add, let's kill some frogs. And you know, that's how they introduce their book, The Humor Code. And I do want to mention, I guess, you know, anyone who studies humor academically falls into this like a gray area. Can you study humor or what can happen? It's such a unusual psychological and physiological and social and artistic phenomenon. You know, laughter, humor, comedy, these are all different things, but similar things and, and so on. So these are the themes of his book and these are the themes of this podcast. And I was so, so grateful that Professor McGraw agreed to let me interview him. I'm gonna say one last thing about the interview. You know, I'm in the Cleveland area, he is not. We did this interview by Skype, and I used a computer that I do not normally use. It's just a computer I had access to at the appointed time of the interview. And uh, this came out a little more Skypey than usual. It's still very listenable to. Uh, maybe I shouldn't even mention it. Now you're gonna notice it and bitch about it, whereas maybe you wouldn't have. If you know anything about audio engineering, I, I always uh, subscribe to the, you know, the advice that you should control your sonic environment and using a different computer than the one that I usually use did not leave me in a position of controlling my sonic environment. I mean, you can hear Professor McGraw and what he says is very interesting and worth hearing. And always when I have like a technical glitch, I feel like I should apologize to my guest because they're uh, entrusting me. And so uh, it sounds good. I wouldn't share it if it didn't sound good. I do want to say that uh, the second rule of audio engineering, audio editing is compress the shit out of it. So there, uh, that uh, compression tool uh, was helpful for this uh, editing this interview. So with that said, please enjoy my interview with Professor McGraw. 
Hello, this is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian. And I'm very pleased today to be joined by my interview guest. This is a writer uh, who, and researcher whose work I've followed for many years, and I was so thrilled when he agreed to uh, be interviewed for this project, Professor Peter McGraw. Uh, hello, Peter. Hello, nice to, nice to be in line with you. Peter, you're uh, known for your humor research lab at the University of Colorado, as well as your book, the Humor Code, uh, both of which we'll talk about in a moment, as well as your uh, podcast, I'm Not Joking. Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to blame somebody, so it might as well be you. I, I followed uh, just online and some of the publications that have come out of the Humor Research Lab, but uh, for the sake of people listening, what is the Humor Research Lab? Like, what is this thing you've created? So, you know, a lot of people like to think that the lab is uh, like this space with shells filled with fluffy <laughs> cushions and right? rubber chickens and, mm -hmm. and so on. But unfortunately, it's always disappointing. For oh. <laughs> it's essentially a group of um, faculty um, and students who are interested in studying this, you know, challenging, perplexing, mm -hmm. yet important topic. And so it's, um, it's essentially a, a mm -hmm. place of people, not right. a place of things. Sure. So, um, the goal, of course, is to try to understand the antecedents and consequences of, uh, mm -hmm. of humor. So sure. what, it, what makes things funny and what's the implications for living a good or not so good life. Excellent. As, as a fellow academic, I often worry about words. So I wonder why you chose the word humor. Like it's not the comedy or it's not the comedy and tragedy or something like that. It's the humor. So why is that the word you latched onto? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I um, we actually really puzzled over, and, and actually many of our papers we spend a lot of time talking about definitions and language. Sure. So the, what we had settled on, and so the, the issue is that the word humor can have three different meanings in the um, uh, in the literature. So on one hand, it could mean what we refer to it as as this sort of um, experience, psychological okay. experience that has okay. a, um, an emotional. Um, a cognitive and a behavioral element to it. So sure. the emotional is amusement, the, the pleasantness the, sure. um, of humor. Um, the cognitive, which is the judgment, the recognition that something is funny or or not. Okay. And the behavioral, which is laughter, right? Okay. So expression of these things. Um, and so the second meaning that you find in the literature is um, humor being referred to as not the experience, but rather the stimulus. Sure. And it causes this. So yep. we use the word comedy to, for that. So okay. it could be jokes or eye rolls or people falling down the stairs or, okay. memes, you know, whatever those things may, may be. Sure. And and then the last thing is this sort of tendency to either be funny or to, to laugh easily, which we um, we refer to often as a sense of humor or a, um, you know, sort of sure. comedic style. There. Sure. So, um, so our interest was was primarily focused on, as I said, the the um, antecedents and consequences. So, you know, okay. more psychologists or behavioral scientists. Sure. Um, mainly, and so we were interested in that part of, of it rather than the, the comedy per se. Although, sure, it's impossible. It's impossible to study humor without also being focused right. on comedy or being, you know, being considering um, sure. comedic styles or sense of humor. My background is in theater. I mention that because when, you know, we teach class on comedy, or I teach a class on comedy in any form, from Shakespeare to stand-up, it would probably be about the second two <laughs> definitions mm -hmm. would be the more pedagogically active. I'm, I'm a bit envious of your ability to teach that class. I'll, I'm going to put that in my faculty review this year. Just to piggyback on use of the word humor, Perhaps uh, you're well known for being the co-author of the book, The Humor Code. You know, uh, well known in certain circles. It's surely on every bibliography of anyone studying comedy at this point. Uh, I've read it. It's kind of, it's structured as a travel log, which I enjoy. Um, I lived in Japan for a while as well, so I have a connections to some of those uh, anecdotes. But uh, be that as it may, uh, what's the Humor Code book about? Yeah, so um, essentially the Humor Code came out of... Um failed attempt uh, <laughs> for me to do stand-up at an open mic in, in Denver, Colorado. At sure. <laughs> uh, I had been invited, I had been invited by a journalist um, who then became my co-author, Joe, Joe Warner. Yes, Joe Warner. He wanted me, yeah, Joe wanted me to um, 
to go to the sidebar with him and critique the comedians or the sure. wannabe comedians. Sure. Why were they funny? Why were they not funny? Use you know use the work from Hurl to do this from right. a research lab. Okay. And in a moment of optimism, <laughs> I suggested that I tell some jokes. And um, as uh, I've already ruined that punchline, which is I, I got up and, and completely bombed. Sure, as you do. Not, not unusual. Mm -hmm. Of course, this led to a kind of reckoning. And that is that uh, humor, if you want to crack the humor code, you, you, you do need a laboratory, I believe. You need to be able to run studies sure. and test hypotheses. But you need sure. more than that. That is, you need the, the richness of experience uh, sure. out in the real world. And um, and so Joel and I decided to team up and right. to go out into the real world to complement what we had been doing and what I had been doing in Hurl with, um, with my colleagues. The Humor Code is, is exactly that, is the outcome of a global expedition. So, you know, we go to these different places, Japan, the Amazon, Denmark, Los Angeles, New York, and so on, mm -hmm. um, Palestine even, yep. to, um, with each place to, to try to answer, answer a question related to, to humor, its creation or its okay. consequences. Sure. I highly recommend the book. At the, um, I like your anecdote. Of, of course, I always tell people that uh, open mic is like parachuting. You should try it at least once. I've never parachuted, though, so I haven't taken my own advice completely. In the humor code, you do have like a central organizing theory, the benign violation theory. What's, what is that? What is the benign violation? <laughs> so, you know, essentially, so, so you know, um, we're, we were kind of late to the party when it comes to um, presenting a theory of humor. Sure. 2,500 years of theory <laughs> um, and hundreds of theories. Yes. This was an attempt to be, I think, really quite um, integrative. That mm -hmm. is, we wanted to try to take these, these, the sort of best elements of these theories mm -hmm. and, um, and create a general, general purpose theory of humor. Okay. Um, essentially, the idea is it's rather simple, um, um, and we we um, illustrate it with the Venn diagram. Sure. Sort of two overlapping <laughs> elements. That is that we laugh at, we're amused by, we judge funny, things that are wrong yet okay, okay. things that are threatening yet safe, okay. things that don't make sense yet make sense, and as we call them, benign violations. Okay. So, you know, you can imagine a world of things that are benign, a world of things that are threatening to the right. way we see the world ought to be, we call them violations. And the things that have both of those mm -hmm. elements to them at the same time are the things we tend to laugh at. You have a go-to example? Well, the go-to example I, I like is tickling. <laughs> you know, tickling yeah. is, a, is a harmless attack. Right. That is that um, it elicits laughter when it's done by someone you trust in a way that's not too aggressive. Sure. And tickling can be used to, to show um, one of the puzzles related to humor. Okay. And that is, why is it that some attempts to make people laugh cause them to be bored? Okay. And why do some attempts cause people to be angry, upset, disgusted, etc.? Sure. And so tickling doesn't always elicit laughter. Sometimes it, it mm -hmm. elicits yawns, whether you try to tickle yourself, for example, sure. situations purely benign. And um, sometimes it, it um, elicits, you know, fear, screams, you know, and so on. And that's like if a creepy guy in a trench coat <laughs> tries to tickle you. Sure. So I, I like tickling also because I think, you know, physical comedy, you know, sure. rough and tumble play and tickling are kind of right. the, the, the right. most basic and most universal form mm -hmm. of, um, uh, of actions that cause um, and it, it seems that part of this is putting it on the uh, what's going on with people when they laugh. So it's, it, I mean, your background is as a behavioral psychologist. Yeah. So it's it sort of is resting on what's eliciting laughter. Well, yeah. So I mean, you know, laughter is not necessary for humor, but sure. But the sort of strongest cases of humor are usually laughter is accompanying that positive emotion, right. that judgment. I mean, uh, you know, laughter is an interesting puzzle. That is, mm -hmm. really, why is it that we laugh? <laughs> so there are a lot of behavioral expressions of emotions. Okay. Um, you know that. So, for example, you know, um, tears when people cry, or sure. um, smiles when people are, are joyous, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, you know, laughter is an interesting one because it is, uh, 
it's verbal, but it lacks language. Okay. It's yep. This universal thing, right? So whether it be a baby or someone from another culture, we can we can all agree that that person is is amused when we see them laughing. Okay. Um, or at least trying to trying to seem amused in the case of, of fake laughter. And so this is actually really striking because we can also find forms of laughter in other other types of mammals. You know, most notably non-human primates like apes and monkeys and bonobos and chimps and so on. But there's even some evidence of um, of something that akin to laughter in in such simple mammals as rats. Hmm. Um, Interesting. When jostled and tickled and kind of in, um, being kind of uh, gently gently jostled and tickled mm-hmm. by it. By you know, it's okay. by by rats in a lab. You know, by the right. rats in a lab. You know, elicits this sort of ultra uh, sonic sure. uh, kind of chirping sound. Sure, it's really fascinating. When I try to explain benign violation in classes where it's you know where it's relevant, my go-to example is the Three Stooges because mm. there's a, at least partially elucidates in a way like why do some people find the Three Stooges funny? They're violent, but they don't really hurt each other. And so people who love it just laugh hysterically, but other people are either turned off by the violence or find it boring. Indeed, yes. Um, I think that, I like, um, I think uh, slapstick is probably the next, that sort of next level sure. of universal. That is that it, it can cross cultures in time, but it doesn't make everyone laugh because some people just aren't quite comfortable with that level of aggression. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you. I'm going to just segue a little bit into the topic of my study, which is religious satire. In in the book, The Humor Code, there are, satire does come up. It comes up a few times in the chapter on Palestine. I wonder, does either the humor code or benign violation elucidate anything about satire for you? Well, okay, so this, yeah, this is, uh, I, I find satire to be a really fascinating case study. And, and frankly, I haven't really written much about it. And sure. So I'm, I'm sort of limited in my expertise. I sort of feel like I need to write about something to <laughs> become, truly become an expert. But For- the interesting thing about satire is that it's an interesting case study of comedy as a tool. Okay. We have started thinking about the consequences of humor. So that is like, how do you use comedy? Right. So right. beyond just entertaining yourself, right? So, sure. So, you know, clearly when people think about humor, they think of kind of uh, exemplar of people going to a comedy club. Right. You know, watching stand-up or, or watching a rom-com, you know, a sitcom right. or something like that. And with the goal of kind of escaping the world and laughing and feeling good and bonding with others, you know. And so um, while that is maybe the exemplar, it's, it's actually a very small part of the, the things that sure. humor in our lives. Um, you know, these things come from small talk and, and uh, the, you know, playful times with, uh, with our partners or children yes. and so on. But not all comedy is really designed to bring people together. Okay. That is that, that sometimes comedy is designed to, um, to be divisive, you know. Sure. To, to, to draw a line in the sand between us and them. Right. Sometimes comedy is designed to try to change behavior, you know, and to, to point out what's, uh, what's wrong and unfair in the world and to shine a light on the ugliness of, sure. of, um, of the world. And so, you know, satire is sort of the idea of kind of, I mean, making fun of, of those in power. Right. Know? That, that, that satire is designed to, um, to, to do what I think uh, the, the average common, comic really wants to do, which is to punch up and to, to tear sure. down the, the unjust, the unfair, the, the powerful, you know, that right. kind of lost their, their perspective on the, on the, common, the common man and woman. And it would seem to me, I'm just trying to, you know, line up the ideas of the humor code and benign violation, and like the phrase punching up, um, there must be a kind of violation, like comedian's going to disrespect the president, or the comedian's going to call out the church. So it seemed to be heavy on violation and light on benign, though, if they go too far, <laughs> so there must be still an element of like the playful clown um, yes, indeed. in the yes, balancing so act. I, I I think you're right about some sort of violation, the wrongness, right? So, yeah. so I virtue, these are critiques 
oftentimes, right? And so what critiques are doing is pointing out what's wrong with the world. They're being, they're criticizing and, you know, we have norms about you, you, we should be polite and we should not criticize and we should, mm-hmm. you know, and if we do, we should do it privately right. and so on. And so, so yes, you're right about the heaviness on the violation. Now, now of course there's, there has to be, for it to be funny, there has to be something okay, right? Or benign right. about it. And where does that come from? So I think one place that it, that it, um, comes from is the fact that it's actually okay to critique people in power. Sure. That is that the nature of the di- the power dynamic leads mm. makes it easier for things to be funny when you're punching up than punching down. And then a second one, and this is the this is the harder one to sort of quantify, <laughs> but yet is I think equally important, which is is actually the the you know the genius of the comic. That is the, sure. um, the ability to take this and not just make it a complaint, but make it what we would call in the humor research lab a humorous complaint. <laughs> that is to, to find a way to make this more playful, to make it fun, to, to find the ironies, to, to use double entendres, mm-hmm. to, you know what I mean, to, yep. um, to, to make this comedic. And that's a much more of a kind of case-by-case basis. Sure. Um, and then, of course, along the way, you know, recognizing that some people want these critiques to be said and some people don't want these critiques to sure. be said. And so, you know, when you're making jokes about the Pope, you know, <laughs> devout, a devout Catholic, um, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how great the comedy is, may not be happy about that. That's right. And, uh, and the, you know, and the agnostic or the atheist or... Mm-hmm. Um, or, or otherwise might might really appreciate it. And so these audience effects are non-trivial. I'm exploring a premise, which is that uh, in sort of the middle aughts, there are these writers that are now called the New Atheists, Dawkins and Hitchens and Sam Harris and so forth, emerged a few years after September 11th. I don't think you'd refer to them as a group, like they're not a school, they don't have a manifesto. But the idea seems to be to aggressively push back on the role of religion in, in sort of mainstream society or politics or education. In that framework, I think there are, uh, certainly there are at least some comedians who joined in, sort of pro-skeptic, pro-science, pro-agnostic or atheist, and sort of aggressively so. And uh, Bill Maher is the most famous, but I think there are others like Eddie Izzard or Jim Jeffries kind of to mention. Anyway, there are others, Ricky Gervais. I was wondering, um, maybe a way to phrase the question for, for you is just in your study of humor, did you observe any post-September 11th um, trends in comedy, be it satire, social media, or just anything that you noticed that you think is interesting? You know, I, I, I'm not a good person to answer that question. The one thing that I can say that, that was very noticeable was this sort of moratorium on laughs. You know that the, how the sort of comedy scene dried up for a period of time. Yes. Um, and how there was sort of waiting, kind of comics, sort of you know largely, especially the sort of mainstream, you know, television late yes. shows, etc., waiting for when it could be okay to joke again. Yes. And um, one of the things in the humor code that that um, we did was take a look at at the Onion, the satirical yes. um, paper, and how they were one of the first. To really come out and make jokes about 9/11, mm-hmm. and uh, the brilliant thing that they did um, was that they um, didn't punch down. They were not making jokes about the victims, but, but rather about the perpetrators. Right. And and that issue that came out that did this, this I mean, I think it's widely regarded as one of the best issues ever, and right helped. Um, and really, you know, they were flooded with with thank yous for people who hmm. um, who were appreciative of their efforts and their success and the fact that they were using comedy um, as this tool to, right. um, to punch back. Right. Well, uh, Peter, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I appreciate all your insights and thoughts. That's great. Well, I'm, uh, I'm excited to hear more about what you're up to and I'm super flattered by your interest and, um, and I'm pleased that, uh, that our work's been able to be a little bit of a help. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I really appreciate Professor McGraw's both his time and his insights and talking about his book, The Humor Code. You know, I'd say the main thrust of it is the benign violation. 
uh, the concept the benign of benign violation will you know be referenced incorporated into the book I'm writing so in addition to having his publications uh, just having it in his own words uh, is a great asset to my project so I really thank him and I do think there is something you know in this area of satire of the benign and the violation like speaking truth to power is it sometimes called you know that's a kind of violation you know you were supposed to respect the Pope and the president and your parents and so it's automatically a little bit of a violation. Of course, if you live in a Western-style democracy, we're more empowered to speak up to people in power. So is that, does that make it less of a violation? And then also in terms of being benign, um, if, if satire is too soft, you know, Jim Gaffigan making jokes about being raised Catholic, which are hilarious, by the way, but it's not really satire. But if the satire becomes too... If the criticism in the satire becomes too like acidic is there a point in which it's not funny it's like it's too much of a violation you know does the joke go too far of course comedians are always navigating those kinds of questions so anyway hey i really appreciate it, professor mcgraw and i appreciate you for listening to the podcast if you've made it this far we're almost to the end all i need to do is say some thank yous i definitely need to thank my friend jeff Geddert. he uh, um, provides me advice on audio engineering as well as some written material for the podcast. And I want to uh, thank my friend Mark Bell. Mark Bell is playing that beautiful uh, Bach organ that you hear uh, in this podcast. Uh, Mark tours the world playing church organs, and I was so grateful that he shared his CD with me and said I could sample from it. You should look up his CD if you like uh, organ music. Uh, you know, this podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Whatever platform you're listening to it on, please like it, please share it, please leave a nice comment. Um, you know, the more likes and ratings and shares we get, these the things can grow. So I really appreciate you. Uh, we do have an uh, email address as well. It's just thecomicalheathen at gmail.com. So, you know, email us your comments. Email us suggestions for topics. If you find an unusual or funny article about religion or pseudoscience or stuff like that, forward it to me. I'd love to see it. And uh, finally, I would just like uh, me, your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, to thank you for listening to this episode of The Comical Heathen. Thank you.